1: The ship wasn't insured and the owners had abandoned it. So the pirates were then trying to extort money from the governments who wouldn't pay.
2: Welcome to Stand Up Speak Up, a Canadian made podcast highlighting important social issues and giving a voice to remarkable people. Jay Bahadur is an investigator for an international agency. He's a Canadian born in Toronto, Ontario, who went on to be a journalist and author, becoming well known for his reporting on Somalian pirates. He got an inside look at Somali piracy after spending months in the country, living with pirates and venturing into areas that most journalists wouldn't dare visit. Jay documented his experience in a book titled The Pirates of Somalia – Inside Their Hidden World, which was released in 2011. Six years later, in 2017, a movie by the same name was released, which closely follows Jay's story. It's also known by an alternate title, Dabka, and was directed by Brian Buckley is portrayed on screen by Evan Peters and the film also stars Barkhad Abdi, Melanie Griffith and Al Pacino I'm gonna go to Somalia and write a book on the pirates Somalia? AIDS AIDS? Isn't that a problem there? I'm going to write about the pirates dad, not sleep with them Okay. You know those outer body experiences where you look around and say this shit isn't happening to me? My only one I could compare it to is when I got pulled over for speeding in
3: Kitchener cop asked me to step out of the car because I had a blunt in the ashtray. What is a
2: blunt? You know, grass. Marijuana. That isn't tolerated in America. I'm Canadian. Sorry, brother. I forget. Oh, please don't forget when I get shot here. I want my body sent to the right country.
0: They is you, CIA. You've got to get the
3: hell out of here. I'm a journalist!
0: It's okay, I don't shut it! i in walking Come like... no. no, down I need somebody Mr. on their side! Baku. All of Somalia needs somebody
2: on their side! Pirates of Somalia is available now to watch, and if you'd like to check it out, you may want to do that first and then come back to this podcast episode. But whether you've seen the movie or not, you can still enjoy this interview. We think you'll find Jay very interesting, and it doesn't contain any big spoilers that would prevent you from enjoying the movie at a later time. Jay joins us today from his home in Nairobi, Kenya, to share the story of his journey, including what it was like to have a movie made about his life, how he got the pirates to open up and talk, whether or not the movie was true to his book, and more.
3: The first thing is, how does it feel to get a movie made about you?
2: Well, I
1: didn't really believe it until about a month ago or two months ago, whenever it actually came out. In theaters, you know, when when I wrote the book, a number of uh, a number of parties approached to discuss movie rights, and you know, I, I talked to them. Finally, signed uh, the option with this one company, uh, Hungry Man. But you never really expect it to happen. I mean, something like two to five percent of movies get made, so it wasn't something that was really part of my life until. I think at the moment it became really part of my life was when they told me Al Pacino had signed on. <laughs> then it became really uh, quite real. But its I guess it was it's very, in terms of how it felt, it's certainly very, you know, you, you're kind of exposing yourself, making yourself vulnerable, similar to writing a book, I guess. But in a way, in, with a book, you can control what's on the page. Nothing is going to be on the page, that, you know, in the end that you don't want to be there. But when you're signing, sort of, you're in a way, you're, your life story to that point there's a lot of factors you can't control. So that was very nerve wracking obviously, because this is even more than the book. This was sort of how I was going to be portrayed to the world. So it was, it was exciting, it was nerve wracking. I love learning about the movie industry. Um, I've actually started <laughs> writing a screenplay now that I've been bitten by the, the bug um, on something totally unrelated, but uh, I really, I really enjoyed, uh, I really enjoyed the process of uh, getting to be part of the movie in a little way, uh, having, a, a, you know, a ten-second cameo. I don't know if you noticed, but I get shot in the movie, <laughs> in, in a nightmare sequence. Uh, I get executed on the runway. So all that was 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 really fun, and um, in the end, I was really, really happy with, with the final product, and I was happy that they stayed true to the story and um, didn't didn't try to sensationalize it uh, or. Um, portray Somalia, you know, in a different way than I had portrayed it in the book, which was, which was really, uh, really much a lot to me.
3: But there was no Al Pacino character, correct? And there was no girl that you were kind of in love with that you became connected with.
1: Right. So that, so to, to answer the first part, the Al Pacino character was kind of a pastiche, his character, and then the Avril Benoit character, who is a real person, of course, you know, was sort of, they were kind of, um, they had components. I guess it's not a pastiche, it's the opposite of a pastiche, where one character is split into split into multiple characters. I don't know what you call that. But yeah, those, those Alvaro Benoit and the Al Pacino character, Seymour, were kind of um, sort of different elements of the same person, uh, in a way. I did speak to a lot of journalists over the course of, you know, deciding to go to Somalia and got and their opinion. And the, the views put forth by the Al Pacino characters certainly were, Sort of the consensus of what I heard from from the people I talked to, including Abra Benoit, in terms of uh, the Marian character. So her existence is very real. (laughs) She's everything about her biography is real. She was the the wife of the pirate lord, uh, Garad. She sold kat in the market. And she was, she was, her and Garad had this kind of thing called a pleasure marriage, where just kind of in Islam, a way of getting (laughs) what. Getting around uh, actual marriage and just want you know if you want to have casual sex or whatnot, you get married for a temporary amount of time. And some people even argue you can divorce over text message. So um, that's I think the arrangement they had. But the, the romantic interest, yeah, that was that was a dramatic license. I actually had I had a long term girlfriend at the time uh, in Canada. So uh, yeah, that that aspect of it was it was fictional.
3: Well, I w- I was thinking like, are, were you relieved there was no sex scene? <laughs> like were you like oh god if there's a sex scene it's gonna be like everybody's gonna see me you know because a lot of movies have like intense sex scenes
1: <laughs> uh yeah you know i thought that that's the way they might go with it but they didn't and uh i, I didn't really think you know I, I wasn't really too worried about that except maybe think <laughs> maybe my ex-girlfriend would think that i had't fair <laughs> that i hadn't told her about but um no I, I wasn't really too worried about that and in the end actually you know when i uh, when I saw what they'd done with it and how they just made it, kind of almost, you know, quite platonic, really. In the end, I found a lot of the people messaging me about about the movie were still very intrigued with that story. You know, where is she? Where is she now? What's become of her? And uh, unfortunately, I don't have too much to tell. I think next time I'm in um, I'm in Somalia and Garway I have to uh, ask around to see uh, see what became of her because <laughs> there's a lot of people who want to know.
0: So
3: I know. Well, I, I did look up kind of saying, like it just did, some of the interviews did kind of say it wasn't as romantic as they would have um, said it was. But, you know, every every story, every leading man needs a female interest, right? Isn't that the whole thing? And every leading woman needs a male interest. So they had to just check that off for doing their movie.
1: Yeah, they. it was, yeah, it was funny. They, I think they were looking for that so intensely in the book and there wasn't really anything to lead them anywhere uh, except this footnote about Marianne. So they actually created her out of a footnote.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Now, okay. How did your mom feel about Melanie Griffiths playing her? Was she pretty excited?
1: <laughs> it was funny. Both my parents at the, at the after party, after the premiere in um, Tribeca in, in April, were running around to to all the, the, the cast and the crew and the, the director and producer <laughs> at the party. Saying no, I wouldn't have said this or I wouldn't have said that.
3: <laughs> oh my God! Really? They're probably like, "Yeah, this is why we don't have them on the set with us."
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was—I had to say to them, you know, it's not about you. It's not really even about re- replicating my character because of the Evan Peters betrayal, uh, he went his own way with that—and they certainly went their own, their own way with my parents as well. And it was—it was hard to explain that you know they stayed very true to the story, but they consciously didn't try and. Sort of, you know, replicate us as if they're doing biopics of us or anything like that, and that that was totally fair. I mean, we're not, you know, well-known people, so uh, they made that decision, and I, I was fine with that as long as the kind of the, the story kept its integrity, and uh, and I think they very much, very much did. So I think Evan Peters, for example, had we had one Skype conversation before filming started, and I think after that conversation, he <laughs> based on that, he he decided to completely do his own thing. Uh, <laughs>
3: But I mean, like, it, at least you got a hot guy playing you, <laughs> right? Like, weren't you like, uh, yeah. okay, good. I got a hot guy. That's like pretty, pretty famous.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, uh, he, I think he, he did a good job, but just, you know, it, it wasn't like, it, I didn't really see myself in that character, but again, that wasn't, that didn't bother me. It wasn't like, uh, that wasn't sort of a requirement for me by any means. And I think my parents uh, for that part, probably expected more of a lifelike portrayal of themselves, even though they would never been interviewed for the movie or anything. So it was a strange expectation.
3: Well, I think it's, I think it's hilarious because Melanie looks so far from a Canadian-style mum. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm watching it, I'm like, okay, man, at least she should be wearing Lululemon or something. But I, I'm watching and I'm thinking, man, like you don't have the Canadian style figured out at all.
1: Malibu, like Housewives of Malibu or something like that. Yeah, exactly.
3: I was like, okay, well, maybe this will make Toronto seem like a much more um, California-esque place. Okay, what would you say was so different from your personality to the one portrayed in the movie? Like, what were you just like, that is so not me? And and versus, yeah, that is like me.
1: Uh, I don't think, like, I was, I'm was. i not nearly as flamboyant. I'm not as, uh, as likely to sort of start screaming or... Losing my head in a way, as sort of, it's portrayed in the movie. When put in really awkward situations or dangerous situations, my instinct is more to get go introverted than to <laughs> and <laughs> to
3: not, not jump out of scream. the car and be like, "Take me on board to the slow oh, right. ship."
1: Yeah, exactly. So that that whole scene was that whole scene was pretty accurate you know pretty pretty true to life in terms of what happened in that town but it, there wasn't any like yelling and screaming you know because that's very easy way to get shot and small yeah. yes. <laughs> In fact, when I when I saw the movie, I have thought that he was going to get shot. Doing that.
3: <laughs> You're like, oh <laughs> shit, like this is going bad. Even though I know how, how it
1: ends, <laughs> but
0: uh, anyway.
3: What I find interesting is that you titled the books actually "pirates," but that wasn't how they wanted to be called. Did you title it "The Pirates of Somalia" just because you knew that's what would get more sales? Like, were you ever tempted to not call it "The Pirates"? The
1: thing is that. It's, it's very, it's, uh, it's not really up to the author, to be honest, uh, titles of the book. I mean, the publishers kind of, I mean, they of course take your input, but in the end, they'll pick what they think is going to sell well. So it actually does have a different title in the UK market. It's called Deadly Waters there, because for whatever reason that the UK editors thought that that would perform better in their market. And it's called Deadly Waters in Australia as well. But ultimately, you know, I, I went back and forth with the editors for month about, months about, about the title. Um, the original title, the working title, was The Pirates of Puntland, which I thought worked better as a sort of a until they pointed out that no one knows what Puntland is. So, <laughs> uh, But yeah, really, um, we, I, I can't really sort of t- tell you how many or overstate how many hours we put into trying to think of a title different than, more interesting than The Pirates of Somalia. But in the end, it was... It, it checked the boxes, <laughs> you know. So, uh, yeah, that's what we went with, at least in the uh, Canadian and American markets.
3: Well, it's definitely catchy. I mean, everybody is fascinated by pirates for, for centuries and centuries, right? So everybody loves a good pirate story. It's just interesting how they, didn't, they don't see themselves as pirates. They see themselves as, like, protectors of the sea, supporting the community. Do they still see themselves like that, do you think?
1: Well, I mean, there hasn't been too much pirate activity, lately in my current job i do i do do some work on what's left of piracy so there were a few attacks last year i interviewed some pirates and certainly they still have that narrative of we were fishermen in most cases they don't even admit that they did anything wrong they just say we were fishermen and we were sort of um, attacked by whoever and captured and whatnot so that that narrative is still from what i can see is still there but yeah that i think the the view of of many Somali Somalis is that yes, they were protecting their seas. I think to that's not my view. So if I were to put that on on the title, not only would it not sell well, but I think it would sort of be disingenuous in terms of what I actually what I actually think and, and believe based on the work I did. Um, and also a, a title like "The Saviors of the Sea of Somalia" doesn't quite <laughs> no. <laughs> <It>
3: doesn't. <laughs> no.
1: And it would certainly be um, yeah. I think it it would not represent you know the what the book argues and what i think
3: do you have any friends still like any of your friends that you met over there or any pirates that you would call a friend that you could still call up and i mean do you still have quite a few contacts out there
1: um i i certainly have a lot of contacts in somalia in terms of the pirates there's one i want to Boya, who's in the movie very prominently last i heard i go to gutterway a lot which is his hometown and um for work. So I currently go, go there, you know, every so often for work. And, uh, last I heard he, he become blind and was a preacher. It was an imam in a, in a mosque and go So that to me is a quite an interesting development. And I, <laughs> I, uh, I was, I was hoping to look him up. I haven't been able to yet, but next time I'm there, I'm going to try and meet up with him. Uh, because he was certainly the one with the most moral depth. And, you know, he, he was older. He was, he was kind of had more, I'd, yeah, I'd say he, was a more sympathetic character than many of the pirates who came up, came around later as in he was actually a fisherman. He, he actually had his livelihood disrupted by, by foreign fishers and, and this kind of thing. And I think he would, genuinely, he was trying to reform and, um, I, I don't know what happened to him. He was, uh, as reported in the movie, he was, was uh arrested and, and put in jail for about three or four years and then released and uh as i said now he apparently is a is a, is a preacher so um that's he's someone i definitely want to follow up with um Garad, the other main pirate uh in the movie was um, was killed some years ago on, on a mission he was one of the few kingpins who would still go out at sea and um, participate in the hijackings and he was killed by uh, by the iranian navy some years ago so yeah, most of the other guys I interviewed were, were kind of lower down and uh, didn't, I guess, make as much of an impression on me. So, in, in short, I, I don't really keep keep tabs on, on on the pirates, but I do obviously still have many contacts and friends in in man in general, and I still work there them.
3: And the drug that you talk about a lot, Kata, that they sell in the market, what what is it like? Like, how does what would it compare to in our drug terms?
1: It's like somewhere between coffee and cocaine, something like that.
3: Okay, okay. Uh,
1: It's just like it's just a stimulant. It's uh, it makes you very talkative, uh, you know, makes you sweat, makes you like grind your teeth, that kind of thing. But in terms of a drug, I mean, it's 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 quite vile to to taste, to eat, and you really have to be committed to it. uh, And then chew it for hours and hours and hours. So I wouldn't recommend it necessarily. (laughs) uh,
3: well, if so, what, why? Are, why do they take it? Does it give them energy? Like, does it relax you? Because it doesn't seem relaxing the way you're explaining it. It seems like it makes you agitated or more intense.
1: Definitely makes people agitated. It, it actually, there's been some studies into into the effect of cotton, just in conflict in Somalia, and, uh, because these militias are often um, are often shooting cotton regularly, and it certainly, I think, well, the argument's been made very convincingly that it certainly. Uh, results in sort of increased pirate, uh, violence, brutality towards the crews, but it also creates a sense of euphoria, you know, it certainly gives energy, makes talking more enjoyable, gives, like I said, a mild euphoria. So it's, it's a drug people, you know, and, and it's addictive. So if, uh, if you're doing it every day, you might need it just to be normal. It's, it's the case for a lot of drugs, you know, you might feel depressed or, or not able to function if you don't have it. So, um, yeah, and there's just not too much else available. In Somalia, you know, obviously alcohol is is extremely limited and very taboo.
3: You mentioned in the in the movie and in your book that it was good to to give to the pirates so they would talk more. But would it also make them, as you said, more violent? Like, would it ever make them more unpredictable for you when they would be offered kata?
1: I mean, no, we would be in just very relaxed situations, so I don't think it would go that way. I'm having a lounge under the, a tree or in a living room. It wasn't in a Tense situation, any 10 situation. So I think, I just think it ha- would have a, a chance of exacerbating things if people were stressed, like if they're sitting on a ship, can't, you know, haven't been able to leave for months, you know, are being buzzed by American helicopters, that kind of thing. That's sort of where it might have a chance to, or, or have an effect of, of creating violence or, or making something more unpredictable.
3: What was your tactic to get the pirates to talk to you? How would you... How would you engage the conversation?
1: Um, well, the first thing was, uh, as portrayed in the movie, I was essentially being hosted by the, the cousins of uh, pirates, and so the Farole family. Was, uh, I'm not saying they were pirates, but they, they were the same subclan as many of the early pirates. So, first off, I was a guest, sort of a guest of their of, of their um, of their clan and, and and the president of the country, who, who, uh, not the country, but of Funland, uh, who was hosting me. that his family was so. There was that. And in terms of trying to engage them, I mean, also as portrayed in the movie, it was sort of key not to just say, call them pirates and, <laughs> and say, are you, doing all this? It, you, know, you know, just like, just like anyone or uh, so certainly any, any person engaged in, in criminal or activity, you might start by saying, asking about their life, their early life, their family, you know, why they went down this road and, you know, not be accusatory, like just be you know, just be interested in their lives. And, you know, generally, if you're interested in someone's life, um, you know, they like talking, you know, look at you look at and me, right? So, you know, people like talking about their lives. And, um, yeah, I think I certainly, I can't even begin to think of all the mistakes I made uh, over there. But um, I think I definitely, over the, the weeks and months, developed a, a better interviewing technique where I was uh, more able to get them to open
3: up. In the movie, they touch on when you know you were feeling stressed and, and anxious what were the times when you felt I can't do this anymore I'm like so done I want to get out of here I'm depressed nothing's going my way what am I doing
1: it was actually I mean the, the movie kind of portrayed me as locked in a room and while it wasn't exactly like that it wasn't you know in a way because there were days and days I would sit without being even being able to, to leave the room you know I, I would, you know, I, before before going to Somalia, I smoked occasionally, but now I, I, there I really started like chain smoking almost because I was so, so on edge, couldn't leave, couldn't do anything. And part of the problem was like, talk about naivete. Uh, you know, I didn't even bring my own phone. Like I didn't have my own phone for the first trip I was there. I didn't have my own SIM. So I was totally relying on other people to like make calls for me. I mean, it was ridiculous looking back and uh yeah there 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 were certainly times when when i thought yeah this isn't going anywhere um and and i wanted to leave i would you know beg people just to take me out for a walk or a run or or something um you know i i would exercise back home i'd exercise regularly i couldn't exercise really in somalia so that all added up the internet barely worked so it was really hard to even uh, really hard to even do research you know on my computer um so yeah, it was, it was, it, it was tough at times, but it was also, uh, the times that were things did happen, you know, then they really happened fast and furious. So it was always kind of looking forward to the next time I'd be able to go out. <laughs> I guess it was like being in prison in a way. The, uh, the, 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 family that hosted me, the Farole family, they were absolutely paranoid about anything happening to me and rightfully so, because it was, uh, you know, it would, it would come back to them. And my partner's father was the president of Clinton. So he was they were all very conscious of creating some sort of incident, and uh, no, I'm you know I'm, I'm grateful for that, I'm grateful that they were they did very productive.
3: When you were out there and you had to learn all these coping skills for dealing with all this discomfort, I guess who were you when you came back? So who was Jay pre going and doing all this, and then post Jay?
1: Well, I, I know I was a lot lighter. I was about forty pounds lighter, when <laughs> so physically. Uh, that when you change when you're not eating very much and you're chain-smoking. I don't know. I think I felt like a journalist coming back. You know, when I went in there, I felt like I was uh, sort of a fraud, a complete uh, uh, interloper in a way, as is expressed in the movie. And when I came back, I felt like I was part of that journalist community in a way. And I had an identity. And then when I went to Kenya in December, after I'd spent uh, all that time in Somalia and I was sort of welcomed into the journalist community here, that really sealed the deal. And I guess that's what really, in a way, attracted me to Kenya as well, is that I felt part of the, of the community for the you know, first time. In terms of a community of, uh, of professionals, you know, like uh, I had an identity, and I knew what I was, and um, I could tell people I was a journalist, and I wasn't completely uh, you know, just full of, full of it. So um, yeah, I guess that was probably the biggest change. Certainly an increase in confidence, and increase in, um, in sort of belief in, in where my future was going. So that was probably the biggest change.
3: Do you think this movie has opened new doors for you? Um, Well, like I
1: said, I'm working on a screenplay, and if if uh, well, I should I hope, finish it (laughs) soon. When I do, um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm hoping to kind of use some of the connections I made uh, with this movie, um, trying to trying to get it on the right desks. Um, But this is just a side project; it's not something I I see myself doing long term. Uh, It was just kind of a desire to get back into writing after, or creative writing after. uh, after kind of a, quite a long stint of, of not doing any. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's an avenue that I want to pursue and who knows where to go. But, uh, it's not something I'm betting my future on or anything.
2: Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Cundall and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. In just a moment, we'll get back to Jay as he gives some further insight on Somali pirates and a story of a ship being overtaken where the owners refuse to pay up. First, wanted to quickly let you know about a way that you can help support what we do here on the Stand Up Speak Up podcast and that is to leave us a quick review on iTunes. It doesn't cost you a cent, but it does help us grow our audience. We're doing very well on the iTunes charts, so thank you very much for listening each week. And to leave a review, just click onto the Stand Up Speak Up page on iTunes. We hope that you'll give us a five-star rating and leave a sentence or two about why you enjoy the podcast. And of course, we are always open to suggestions and ideas for guests as well. We're always listening on Facebook at StandupSpeakUp. Podcast. Thank you very much. And now back to Carla's interview with Jay Bahadur.
3: How many of the Somali pirates, like, actually murdered other people, or what? what did they kill people?
1: There was a few instances where, where crew members were actually executed. Um, I guess it depends what you mean by. There were the different levels of killing, I guess. So, in one case, a ship that I was looking at, in fact, a crew member had been shot in the boarding, so he'd been hit by a stray bullet, I think, or at least a bullet, not, not intended to directly hit and hurt someone, but had been hit, and I can't remember if he, he was killed or not. There were a few cases where, yeah, people were actually executed as a message, and then there were cases where people were, crew members were driven to suicide, so that would consider that a form of murder. Um, you had cases where people were kept for years and died of illness. Again, would be a, a form of murder, obviously. So there are different levels of, of what pirates—you know—the the consequences of, of their actions were. But it wasn't common for for them to actually intentionally kill people.
3: So when you talk about driven to suicide, um, driven to suicide, just because the people felt there was no hope when the pirates came on board and they were being starved, or
1: well, this I mean, the one. The example I'm thinking of, it was a case uh, where they had been on board for two years or something, and uh, I guess the guy, you know, understandably just broke and, uh, and killed himself. I, I don't think it was a, over something in particular, aside the fact that he'd been held on the ship for two years.
3: So he was held on the ship? What what country was he from?
1: Uh, I don't remember. It may have been Pakistan or India.
3: Pac- okay, interesting. So they And why didn't they let him go, they were waiting for the money to come. I mean, what, I mean, after two years, wouldn't you kind of be like, Hmm.
1: Yeah. Again, good question. I think in this particular case, um, the ship wasn't insured and the owners had abandoned it. So the thing is the pirates were then trying to extort money from the, the governments uh, who wouldn't pay. And so in the end, I think what happened was, um, there was some private fundraising and they finally got them off. But, um, yeah. I mean, I guess they, they would have been abandoned and uh, I guess this particular person, there may have been more than maybe two people that committed suicide, one or two who, uh, I guess didn't really hold out any hope, but yeah, that was a rare case. I mean, it, it was, it was a rare case and the pirates, why they didn't let it go is because the problem is, um, when they, uh, first they don't really believe that there's no money. So if they're told that this is a shipping company, um, doesn't have insurance or they've abandoned it they won't believe it number one number two they they owe people because during the whole operation they're taking credit to buy cot to buy food other supplies fuel so they owe potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of this time and they need to pay it back so in a way their back their backs are against the wall so there were a number of cases um like this where the ship was abandoned which really you saw the, the worst kind of the worst effects and consequences of of the pirates you know, out.
3: and what about sexual assault in the pirates would that happen how, how prevalent would that be
1: uh, I mean very few merchant mariners are women so that's one thing in terms of sexual assault against men I'm not sure I did one case where I was following the Victoria which is the ship that's portrayed off Ale in the movie did have a woman on board and I asked about that and uh, they told me no they never they never bothered me. They treated her with respect and blah. blah in fact, there was, I think there was, um, at one point, there was a pirate manual discovered on board. I can't remember the details, but it was some like, code of conduct that, that some pirates had put together for their crew. And one of the things was, like, don't sexually abuse anyone. So I don't know how, faithfully that was carried out, or how widespread it was, that was. But I, I certainly didn't hear, There's no, there are no cases that stick out in my mind of sexual assault. But obviously, that's not saying it didn't happen.
3: And the, the cruise ships, many times they have the water that sprays out, and as they go through the waters, do they? Do you know of cases where they attacked <laughs> cruise ships?
1: Yeah, early on there was a few where they they kind of fired some RPGs at cruise ships. I can't. I don't think any cruise ships were, were hijacked. But then I imagine very that was very early on. So afterwards, I imagine they just completely avoided the area. that be I don't think any cruise company would even take a slight chance of of having uh, you know. Having a boat hijacked with, with hundreds of people on board.
3: So, can can I ask you what your screenplay is about? Are you allowed to give an idea or no?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm writing about uh, it's a. So, it's a historical drama set in uh, ancient Rome, uh, but it's about a hypothetical Roman intelligence service set in the reign of Caligula. So, essentially, there uh, it's about a couple of Roman spies, who, um, and then they're caught up in this whole, whole uh, web to assassinate Caligula. So. Just a little passion of mine, Roman history, so I'm uh, just indulging in a little a little fantasy.
2: We'll put links to find out more about Jay and follow the updates on his screenplay in the show notes for this episode at standupspeakupblog.com, along with links to his book and the movie trailer. Thanks for listening to Stand Up, Speak Up. And in our bonus content today, our quick wrap-up discussion for this episode as Carla shares what got her interested in Jay's story and why she is fascinated by investigative journalism.
0: Low, when you're feeling low And you just don't know where to run to Broke, if your heart's been broke And you're feeling If you need something to believe in If you're looking for a light to guide you home Just look inside Your light is shining brighter than you know And you should know
2: I'm never gonna let
0: you down I'm always gonna build you up When you're feeling lost I will always find your love
2: Thanks for listening to our music selection today. That was Ain't Never Gonna Let You Down, performed by Linda Nuska. This was pretty fascinating because up front, when I first, y- you know, you first brought this story to me about Jay, I assumed it all sounded crazy because he went to get an inside look at these pirates' lives. And I just thought, how do you do that without getting killed? So it was a dangerous situation, but what did you think of the, how he how it came across? It wasn't That crazy, it didn't seem afterwards, they would actually talk to him.
3: Yeah, I think he's probably very charismatic and he's probably very much a chameleon that can um, probably be in any situation and talk his way through it. And he's probably very unassuming, I think, because he was the first journalist to ever get to talk to pirates like none of the big guys had ever done that before that that's what i found so fascinating about his story is that he was just so tenacious and just so driven and so determined and he was willing to put himself um on the line you know his own his own life on the line to get the story Yeah,
2: i was thinking that has to be uh had to be nerve wracking for his parents even because he said in the interview how there was of course not great internet over there a lot of the time so he was just gone for weeks months at a time and not really in contact that much with home. I mean, when I,
3: when I first watched the movie, like, Al and I were home and we were just Al's my husband and we couldn't find a movie to agree on, so I kind of, we picked that one. And as soon as I heard that he was Canadian, I got super interested because I love when Canadians do cool stuff, right? Who doesn't, right? When it's a Canadian, I'm like, oh my God, like, wow. And he's from my hometown, even better, right? And I just was like so impressed that he he saw that he just couldn't make inroads in his own country and he needed to do something completely insane to move up the ladder as a journalist and I guess part of me saw myself like that when I had to move to China to make inroads in telecom you know like I knew that Canada was kind of a boring country business wise they weren't very uh, I guess risky they don't really have that kind of maverick fearless attitude here so i thought i had to even leave the country at his same age we both left our countries in the same age now i didn't go into a uh, pirate situation and so i guess for him doing that i just like totally was impressed by him like i was like wow he kicks ass like what a cool guy
2: the lengths he was willing to go to to uh, get his story
3: yeah, my husband was like, "What a stupid guy! How can that be? So, how can you be so impressed, Carla? The guy! Like, imagine his parents freaking out, doing what he, like he didn't even think of anybody else's feelings, how that would impact them." But I just kept going, "Oh man, that's great." You know, he really just—I don't know—like lived dangerously, I guess.
2: I'm drawing some correlation here to the uh, a while back when we did the Finding Shelley series, and a certain podcast host was climbing through the basements of crack houses.
3: I know. I know. I mean, I think that I feel like in this, it's really strange, but I feel like a big part of journalism is investigative journalism. And I'll never consider myself a journalist. Obviously, I I don't consider myself that. But I feel like investigative journalism is really the real journalism. And I know that a lot of people would give me flack for that. I just feel like doing something that somebody else wouldn't do to tell a story is like super cool. You know, like like I, sometimes I think, like, and I know that maybe I can't do this, but in my mind, I dream of a time that I could go and do um, investigative journalism on female car- cartel leaders. So females that are super high in um the criminal underworld, and because it's very male dominated the criminal underworld, and but yet there are a few female have made it to the top, and I would just love to interview them and um see how they work and just understand how they were able to get to the top. That would be my ultimate investigative piece.
2: It is fascinating to finally learn about a lot of these things that are out there that we can't access for whatever reason, like in these cases, it's just too dangerous or or nobody looked. So to have someone go in and take the risk and get that uh, that story to share with everyone that we've never really heard before. Of course, you know, uh, like in Jay's case, it was just it was very well received. He had a lot of response from it. Everybody wanted to talk to him and, you know, ended up in, into a movie.
3: Yeah. And deservingly so, because I think um, I, I believe that investigative journalism should be should be paid for because a journalist telling a story is very different than a lawyer telling a story or a police telling a story or a somebody that works in the front lines telling the story it it comes from a very different perspective usually of no judgment like he didn't really take a judgment good or bad about the pirates like he never he wasn't like he'd be a police officer saying like what they did was wrong or be a government official that was like challenging what they were doing he was just telling them He was just telling the audience, like, the reality of the situation. That's what's so cool about journalism and investigative journalism.
2: Thanks again for listening to Stand Up, Speak Up. This has been our interview with Jay Bahadur. You can find us online at standupspeakupblog.com, and we'll see you next time.